Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. You know, not enough family businesses have planned for the next generation to take over. Among these challenges is that families refrain from having difficult conversations around increasingly essential topics, such as the need for prenuptial agreements. With divorce rates exceeding 50% when factoring in second and third marriages, it's time we re-examine prenuptial agreements or prenups. Without a prenup, state laws govern how marital property is divided in a divorce. This becomes especially problematic when one party is the owner or inheritor of a family business. My guest today believes families need to learn that the personal can get in the way of best business practices. So in today's podcast, we will focus on how prenups go beyond financial concerns, that there are legal safeguards to protect family assets and business continuity. The negative effects of divorcing spouses on the other owners and the business's other stakeholders, like employees, suppliers, and customers, and the best practices for establishing a family policy that requires prenups as part of family and business governance plans. My guest for the show today is Marianne G. Bell, a partner at Wingspan Legacy, a family business and family office advisory practice providing global families, founders, and rising leaders with ongoing guidance to build and preserve their legacies. Marianne is the director of the Gallivan Bell Family Office. She had a long career at Goldman Sachs in New York, Boston, and London, where she ran the international shares business. And a philanthropic leader in Austin, Texas, Bell has chaired many boards and is now serving as chair of the Heart Gift Foundation. Marianne earned an MBA from Harvard University and a BA from Georgetown University. Marianne, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jonathan. So this is a really interesting and exciting topic. So let's get started with, um, you know, what's your, what's your journey been? To where you are today. So give us a little background about yourself, please. Sure, sure. Well, thank you for sharing my bio. And it and I think it's important for people to think about their lives in different chapters. You know, we all have different chapters that lead us to where we are today. 
Uh, I, I know there's many people uh, who enter into this business having come from a family business, but that was not my journey. I uh, began my career and spent, as you mentioned, um, almost 20 years on on the trading floor. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wearing a headset today, and I was wearing these in the 90s. Mm. Uh, but uh, what was fun about the 90s and the ecosystem of financing is, is, is dramatically changed today. But what was interesting is that entrepreneurs went to the capital markets for for financing. And so you saw what is today the, the biggest and largest tech companies coming to the market when they were small, little, early revenue stage businesses. And you'd see these entrepreneurs have an, a massive amounts of wealth creation in front of you. So I had an early experience with founders who created wealth. And then if, after my time in Wall Street, I, as you mentioned, spent a, a tremendous amount of time in the philanthropic arena. And really what that was is working on boards in their governance. And uh, what what you do realize in, in any organization, whether it's a philanthropic or a public organization or a private family business, is that the rules of the game are important. And, and I, I, you know, I don't want to say they have to be stricter or uh, uh, burdensome. I mean, everyone gets nervous about regulation. Guidance on platforms is really important to, to to govern how decisions are made, how succession is planned. And I love your title, Disruptive Successor, because I think it's a really important topic to discuss. And uh, allowing for organizations to have a game plan is really valuable. Yeah. And look, families don't want to have these kind of conversations a lot of times. So yeah. sometimes the different things that I see come up is, uh, well, one, no one wants to talk about their mortality. So that's a that's a game stopper for some people, and and the estate planning just doesn't happen. Others haven't quite really figured out how their business is going to transfer from one generation to the next, which is hence you know the back cover of my book talks about the low single digits of it making it to the third generation. Right, and people also you know things. I I've been called in as a consultant for more than 30 years. I have occasionally been called in by bankers saying, well, this, uh, I remember getting called in by a guy who said, you know, this, this man built a $30 million um, construction company and he's just died of a heart attack and his wife was just thrown into it and she has no idea uh, what she's doing. And then there's times I'm sure that you're seeing and what we're going to be talking about in today's show is that people get divorced or a business gets uh, um, somehow split up. And and then, you know, weird situations are with family members or involved in a business that maybe shouldn't have been or don't know anything about it. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. You know, it's interesting. I think for the the, the hesitancy or the the reluctance of, of, of an older generation to have difficult conversations with the next generation – I do think that stems from that instinctive parental um, protective instinct. They don't want to burden their children with the difficulty. Many entrepreneurs and founders have worked really hard. They've seen difficult kind of socioeconomic conditions, and maybe their children are being born and raised into a different environment, and they're trying to protect their child. So I, I like to look at that hesitancy not as a a lazy or unwilling to do hard stuff. It's just this instinctive protective instinct. But at the end of the day, you never want to infantilize your children. You want to give them agency and, and respect the ultimate way in which you show respect, care, and validation is give it people information. But I think 
shifting that lens and that mentality is is difficult for owners. And, and, you know, listen, I'm sorry you've had to jump into some very difficult conversations. What we like to do is try to plan, anticipate. I mean, there's going to be tricky times no matter what in business and families and everything. Life happens. Health happens. Businesses happen. So you're going to have challenges. But to anticipate and try to what is one of the words I was looking at? I don't know. One of the publications of 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 uh, the words of the year to try to de-risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. the, the, the platform, <laughs> right? You try to anticipate what is around the corner, and 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 there's so many. I will be not to say low hanging fruit, but I would say in some ways, a prenup is is low hanging fruit in that way because it de-risks the ownership 100%. of concentrated business such as a family business. Hundred um, percent. But yeah. but you know, listen, I, I I you know what you're doing is really helpful because it starts to have those conversations. I'm a huge advocate of the kind of drip drip drip. Of mm-hmm. the dialogue versus the fire hose. Right. The fire hose doesn't work. And the fire hose looks like what? In what? What's the context of that? Well, sadly, a fire hose, and we, I'm sure you can throw in some stories. Talking- we have a sad, you know, somewhat story that we're working with a family where the the, the principal who started the business um, was going for a routine medical. I don't. I think it might have been a gallbladder or something. I I don't actually know what the what the medical condition was, but it was a you know a relatively healthy. 60s late 60s year old gentleman who died on the operating table and Mm. so all of a sudden the children who knew nothing that's the fire hose they had to jump in and learn a bunch of stuff about the business and they just didn't know right unfortunately even in 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 what also gets revealed is how much you don't know and then sometimes things that were just not done well well i i was thinking that the fire hose was an estate planning attorney telling someone what they need to be doing and fire hosing them with information and that the the recipient is not in a um a receptive place to be able to hear all that and so they don't go forward into the the water they just they disappear run away from right. it and then right. they come back a few years later and and they're no further along and and god forbid something happened like a gallbladder incident on the operating right. table right. Uh, and so these are really important things and so like I would imagine that the concept around prenups has changed a lot. Um, I got married three decades ago, uh, been divorced for 10, but I got married three decades ago. And the concept of a prenup to me at that point in time in my life, in my mid-30s was, this is ridiculous. Like, why would anyone want to put a prenup in place? That's like saying, let's go into this marriage planning for our divorce right, so that right. we know what it'll look like. And yet, you know, here I am 30 years later, and I would absolutely advocate for it. I would absolutely advocate that anyone in a business that's even like looking to start a business would say, okay, what's the exit plan here? Let's right. think about, let's build it with the exit in mind, which is completely not what most small business owners um, do, right? Most small business owners are entrepreneurs by default, not by design, maybe. They don't think that, okay, I'm going to build this business. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to scale it. I'm going to sell it, exit, and then I'm going to do X next. So I think it's, I think the thinking around prenups have changed a lot is what my point is. There's a couple of backdrops that I think, you know, first of all, in pop culture, certainly, I mean, Jonathan, you and I perhaps were of the era of dynasty in Dallas and all these yes. uh, representations of marriage and unequal 
economic capabilities. Mm -hmm. Today, it's very interesting. You know, what you've just described is absolutely shown true in some research. Uh, the Harris Poll did a research recently where uh, the attitudes and inclinations towards prenups has dramatically changed from, sorry, your and my generation. Yes, I bet. Um, and I think if you just really start to unpack, and again, I'm trying to use the modern language or phrases, mm -hmm. um, if you start to understand that, that, that pattern, that, that nuance, Younger people today have much more knowledge and understanding of financial and, and agency yes. uh, with financial literacy. So, you know, the, 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 the democratization, if you want to call it that, of access today, it's not about having a broker who you talk to. There's right. numerous applications, whether it's an app or a podcast. I mean, there's, you know, you've got an incredible podcast. There's probably half a dozen about financial, you know, and, and actually even targeted toward different groups of people, whether it's women or men or different types of uh, entrepreneurs or people who are in finance. So the access to information and knowledge on how to how to manage your finances is much, much greater. Yes. Yes. I mean, things have changed so much. I was just reading this chapter in this book that I was talking about before we started the show. And it was all about active in, uh, investing versus passive investing and what's the right approach. And ultimately, you know, can you get ahead, which is what I've been trying to do with active investing. And, you know, back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, um, knowledge didn't get out as quickly, didn't disseminate instantly. And so there was an arbitrage of, if you will, of knowledge where you could make a, a buy or a sell based on the fact that you had information and others didn't. And today that has been completely leveled. There is no, you know, so it kind of makes it calls into question the use of managers in managing your portfolios oh, because that's that's another podcast but i right. totally oh, agree right. with you let's on not that go one. there um, but 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 i think that you're right you're 100% right that that the access to information and the understanding agency and also even just this idea of managing towards whatever goal you want i think the objective goal of working towards whatever huge amounts of money isn't always the plan for a lot of people some right. people even have a plan to um to retire early. So they're managing their lifestyle. So there's, there's not just the baseline introduction, what's your credit score, how, what's a bond versus a stock, or how do you create a portfolio, but really what type of lifestyle do you want to construct that allows you to achieve your goals? So I think that's a starting point. The other factor that is just a reality of today's life is that with the massive increase of, of costs of, of, of higher education, a lot of young people finish out their academic lives with significant debt. Yeah. And or so don't even you, go, I would imagine. I mean, it just yes. the, the value proposition just doesn't seem to be there like it used to be. Right. Right. So but and so when you when you kind of deconstruct this idea of this wonderful relationship filled with love and marriage and lots of hearts surrounding it, it's a contract. Yeah. And when you enter into a marriage, it's a contract. And um, certainly with with. Um, I come. I live in Texas. Texas is a community property state. Mm -hmm. There are nine community property states. California and when you being enter, one of them. Exactly. Yeah. So California and Texas being two of the top three largest populations in the country. You've got 40 million people. We have 30. So you're talking 70 million people mm -hmm. in this country, in addition to the seven other states, are governed by the laws of community property. And what that means is the minute you're married, you have equal ownership of assets and liabilities. Right. And I think I think there's a different sense when you enter into this marriage that young people now bring to the to the conversation, what their assets are and what their liabilities are and what who's responsible for them. So, so let's think, talk about how do you structure or how would you recommend structuring a conversation with your 
soon-to-be wife, um, or maybe you're already married, and you're about to either buy or inherit some of the business, maybe as part of a whole transition plan from one gen to the next, and you want to exclude them from that piece of the pie, and uh, and yet maybe you they've been together, you've been together with this person for a number of years, perhaps either married or preparing to get married, and now suddenly you're saying. Well, this over here is really mine, and I'm. We're, you know, the family doesn't. Uh, you know, you could always say the family has talked about this and has decided everyone must have a prenup before we transfer any equity. We're not. They don't want to be in business with the, you know uh, wives of of some of the well, of the well, sons really or something. Nicely capturing Jonathan, what we've put into like uh, maybe not a bumper sticker, but something that you can remember, which is policies before it's personal. Okay, and we absolutely recommend that that um, for a family that has concentrated ownership of, a, of an asset, certainly a family business, that there should be policies governing ownership and also govern policies governing transfers mm-hmm. and uh, recognizing that that is also something, but really truly the ownership component of it should be governed and, and should be appropriate for everyone. So I think what's really difficult if people take this approach of, well, I want to do this in relation to one individual. That's just doesn't feel like it has a sustainable approach. So policies before it's personal Mm -hmm. is the approach. And and we really, as, as family business advisors and family office advisors have, um, have those conversations earlier. I mean, it's uh, interestingly, I have a family that I'm working with right now and they have nine gen, the next gen, we I'm sure you use the same, the yep. G3, mm-hmm. nine G3, all between the ages of 18 and 31. And the, the, not even the oldest, but one of them just got engaged. But earlier in the year, we had written a family constitution and uh, included in the family constitution was an understanding that any, any owners of the family business or any, any recipients of the family business would be required to have a prenup. So and when what? this young person got married, it was not really a a difficult conversation. Okay, so take us through what's entailed in prenup. I mean, can I just go to LegalZoom.com and download a, a boilerplate? Or what's different from what might come from that versus what's constructed with a, a an attorney or or a you know Legal, a person who's advisor. quarterbacking that? Yeah, yeah. The, the the first objective that you need to define is what is the goal here, and and really in many cases the goal is to make sure that ownership of the family business is retained by a defined community. Okay. In many cases, that defined communities are uh, legacy members. And we don't just say blood members because some of our families have adopted children. And we even define those as adopted children before 18 mm-hmm. because, you know, there is that story of that adopted person who has then eligibility who's perhaps not as interesting. Uh, uh, well intended in that relationship, and so they get adopted as a as a as major adults. adult. Yeah, right? we, well, we've we've seen that story where you someone loses a spouse, they have somebody who's kind of in their life who's younger who helps them, and that person then becomes adopted, and then they're eligible as a recipient of how how language is framed for assets or or ownership. Okay. And again, each family is different. So this one, I said, you got to go back to the goal. For many families, the goal is to keep the ownership of the business in the family, in the family tree in perpetuity. And so if that's that's the goal, that needs to be incorporated into the language of the prenup. Now, as you suggest, there's, there's lots of ways to have legal 
construction today and you can download a will, you can download a prenup, you can download a lot of stuff. Um, when it comes to, you know, of course, the other construct that you have to um, consider is that it has to be um, each each party has to have some representation because we want this to be con put together or constructed so that it's considered uh, individually representative and representative of a person's free will. So to that extent, the best construction for a prenup that would assuredly protect the assets of a business is that each of the participants would have their own legal representation. And it also gives an opportunity for a young couple to have conversations. In many cases, the only thing that would be actually designated as, and it would be designated as separate property, is the shares of the business currently held or future and in, inherited in the future. And in other cases, everything else is shared 50-50. Mm -hmm. In some cases, yeah. somebody asks for a house or, you know, uh, again, this is not really a, a a podcast focused on different types of ways that you can construct right. you know, assets that can be shared. But, you know, life insurance is something that many, many spouses ask for if someone passes away. And so those are the kind of insurance assurances that could be built into a prenup. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've, and we've seen homes built in. And what about income streams? We, we're talking all about assets. Do, yeah, do yeah. people protect income streams? So yeah. they say you're entitled to this percent or this amount, uh, and they put those types of constructs in as well? Uh, what we've seen possible, is most palatable, Jonathan, is truly the definition of these assets of the of the business held as separate property. In other words, the, the spouse who doesn't wouldn't have eligibility would never have eligibility for this, but that everything else is, is divided equally. And mm -hmm. I think that's oftentimes the right spirit that people can enter with a shared understanding. Now, here's something that I want to share that, again, I'm getting a little into the nuances here. But okay. in some cases, a family business says, OK, you, you know, you're going to you own a certain amount, but we're going to give you also sweat equity. In other words, you're in the family business. We're going to allow you to get the rewards of the share ownership as part of your compensation. And mm -hmm. if that's the case, that also has to be articulated in the prenup. So if future shares would be part of compensation, not just inherited because of who you are, but as part of compensation, articulating that as separate property also needs to be clear in the, yeah. in the prenup. I'm seeing that with one of my clients. An interesting story is a, a prior guest on this show and a personal friend of mine, someone I went to business school with 30 years ago. Um, has a second wife. His second wife joined him in the business in the capacity of uh, an HR manager. And he just brought in a full-time CEO five months ago. And two months ago, the, the he removed himself somewhat from the business with the intention of buying a retirement home in Southern California, maybe that he would spend a lot more time in. Um, and tragically, he was killed in a head-on car crash. Um, his second wife, current wife, survived the crash, um, and he left four children and you know and an ex-wife. And I don't know this what the hard. construct of his. Uh, if I assume he had a prenup, he built a pretty substantial business. It was really on fire enough so that he could bring in a, pri a, a, a paid CEO. But like I'm thinking as, a, as I'm taking you through this particular story, that there are cases where uh, 
the the a spouse is a uh, a second marriage and it, they meet through the business. I'm thinking actually quite a few clients that I know that have met through their businesses and gotten married, but where one person was the primary driving force behind the business and the complexity in these types of situations. Uh, well, I can only well, imagine. Jonathan, you're, you're, you at, you're really kind of leading to one of the other things that's really important, which is, of course, legal documentation before a marriage needs mm-hmm. to be constructed Right. Well, before the marriage, two independent lawyers uh, advising. But then maintaining the currency of your estate documentation is also really, really important. Oh, my God. Some people also have post-nups, so that can be another construct that can be determined. Mm-hmm. It, it's really a roadmap. I mean, this poor family, these young children, or I don't know how old the children are, but this woman who survives mm-hmm. this car accident, she's mm-hmm. obviously, this has been a trauma. For her to now have to un documentation when she didn't have any understanding of it or if it's not representative of that second marriage those are the things that you have to maintain i I, you know it's funny i've been married uh 23 years and we've done our estate documentation three times wow so that's that's every seven years yeah and um my my family yeah yeah my family's had wealth creation we as you mentioned we have our own family office now so there's been children and then there's been assets and Giving our family and my my children are still young and 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 at that age where their their discernment and their ability to manage this information they're we're on that precipice right now so you have to be careful and thoughtful of how you bring in that next generation but I think at a very basic principle is that you have to maintain your legal documentation to represent your intent your design and your current status because people's yeah. status changes yeah yeah so. Boy, that's a whole other conversation we won't go down. So I want to talk about the negative effects of divorcing spouses on the other owners and stakeholders in the business. I mean, no one would think that employees, suppliers, customers might be affected, but right. but they are. Well, can I can I can I throw a little pop culture at you? Yes, please. I don't know if you ever watched the the TV show Ted Lasso. I did not. I only I caught a glimpse of it, but well, it, you know the the principal. Yes. I mean, the, 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 the storyline's pretty pretty basic. Yes, right. uh, the, the one of the main characters, Rebecca, gets divorced from Rupert. They're a, a, a you know very well well uh, affluent British family, and Rupert loves football or soccer, and he owns a soccer club. Well, to in a mean spirited way, Rebecca takes the soccer team as a settlement in the divorce, and then brings wow. in Ted as this ridiculous coached because she wants to burn it to the ground right so that show is just is a, it... i mean it's got a lot of wonderful little characters and it's it's sweet and i won't, won't i won't ruin the ending for you mm-hmm. but that the premise premise of that whole show is that a disgruntled ex-spouse will have will have uncertain intent and in some cases tremendously ill intent for the value of the assets. Mm-hmm. And now in this case, it was a football team, but think about it, any soccer yeah. team, any yeah. any asset has employees, it has stakeholders well beyond the family. Right. And so we, we again, de-risking or mitigating those types of scenarios is really, really important. Even if it's a minor, minority shareholder, that can be disruptive to a business and certainly to a brand. I mean, how would you like to have, I mean, look, let's be honest, divorces can get messy. And when they, they're associated with large assets, they oftentimes get covered in media. And so that can be disruptive to the value of the brand, the incentive of the, or the morale of the employees, the, the confidence that, that vendors have. 
And, and, and so these are the kind of things we want to, again, de-risk or remove from the equation by saying, no, no in-laws. In-laws are never going to have ownership of these assets. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking of another piece of pop culture, as you told the story about Ted Lasso, and that is the HBO show Succession, which yeah. is loosely based, I think, on the Rupert Murdoch family Correct. and story. Correct. And I actually found it unwatchable because so so these people were such despicable uh, human beings. Um, but you see the conflict that can go on and you can see the destruction of uh, customers, deals that, that were in process that got blown up because of, uh, you know, family dynamics. It, it's, go. It, it, I was going to say, it's, it's, to me, it's, it is, you know, luckily, and I hope you're, you're, you have this situation, Jonathan, many people work with my organization and I'm sure work with you because they want to seek out harmony. They want to seek mm -hmm. out a path, even yes. if it's just a way in which uh, there's just an understanding and a pathway to whatever the context is. When you have that nefarious distrust, it's. In, I think it's so unsettling. It's mm -hmm. so, and this is a concentrated asset that never would reach its potential if you've got that as a scaffolding. Hundred percent. So, what are some of the best practices for establishing uh, family policy, putting it in governance? What haven't we covered? that we should be touching upon. Well, we talked a little bit about kind of some of the, the, the marital constructs. We also mm -hmm. think it's very important to have employment policies. Mm -hmm. we, 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 it's interesting, many of the families that come to look for advice have, um, it's, it, there's, it's not all of them, but many of them have a, a, a leader generation that's mid forties to mid sixties. Right. And oftentimes they have that next generation between the 20s and the 30s. Mm -hmm. And there have been no pathways or platforms to think about how that next generation can either enter in the, into the business, have ownership of the business, or in any way get involved in the business. And they probably know a little bit about it because they've grown up, grown up on a table where that was part of dinnertime conversation. But creating uh, uh, policies for employment for advancement within the company, we have we oftentimes make policies of um, you can't report to a family member, uh, you have an outside non-family mentor, you have uh, an opportunity to uh, participate in board as a board observer. Um, we think it's very important to inform the next generation about the business, and so after board meetings, we provide appropriate information to the next generation. So, in in simple terms. Policies are important, but agency or an information is the starting point. Policies are the second part. And then platforms. I mentioned that board observer platform. We think that's a really good way in which some that next generation can have the opportunity to literally serve in the seat, attend the meetings. They have the same types of NDA and confidentiality requirements. They're responsible to prepare for a meeting. They don't have uh, fiduciary roles. They don't have a vote on the board, but they start to learn and understand about the business. Yeah, interesting. You know, as I'm, I'm, I'm listening and engaging with this conversation and realizing that family businesses come in all different sizes, right? So it starts at the local uh, level where there's locally needed goods and services, and they have a family that's running a, a dry cleaner or a, a mailbox uh, postal type of business or a pizzeria. Or last night I was in a, a diner that is uh, starting to franchise and the two boys are running it, but the grandfather started. So it can start at that level and it can go all the way up to the Rockefellers, the Murdochs. The... So not 
all these types of families are going to have the same needs, right? So family governance is not going to exist for this small mom and pop type business. They're not going to have a family constitution for a business that's of a medium size or, or below. Is there some kind of a, uh, uh, how do I describe it? Like a, a, a roadmap for understanding what phase or stage of development your family or business is in that then helps you decide what are the What's things appropriate? that we need? Yeah. No, I, I, Jonathan, I think you've nailed it because uh, some of those those constructs that I've uh, framed out may be for larger companies. I think even a smaller family, though, should have employment policies. Yes, for and sure. Des- and decision making governance. Yes. I think it, you know I don't care if you're a, if you're a we have one family that we're, we've worked with that uh, has a, a gym and it's the two siblings are running it and mm-hmm. I'll tell you they fight all the time. Wow. Because they don't have decision-making governance. Who has the authority to write, make decisions on different things? No matter what business you're working with, decision-making governance is really important. Who owns what? And owns maybe is a delicate word because you want to make sure there's aligned and and, uh, consensus. Mm -hmm. But who has authority over what parts of the business and uh, whose roles and responsibilities are defined? I think that's a very basic starting point. And if if you're an even mix, who's the tiebreaker? Correct. In situations where there's a 50-50 and, you know, how do, and or what is the process by agreeing upon and coming to consensus on decisions? Yes. And yes. putting and family, so- family first in most situations. But, you know, one of my guests, I think also from Texas talked about, are you a, a business first family or a family first business? Right. It's kind of an interesting concept. Um, and it makes I, you I listened like- to your podcast and that was great. And I think that that is a question that, that you, you know, and it's interesting. We, we do work with some international families where um, pride in their, their country and their culture oftentimes supersedes their commitment to the business. And I mean, the family. Yes. And so yes. the business becomes the priority. Yep. Interesting. And, and, you wow. know, listen, I think I think the world of entrepreneurs, I mean, we started off talking about entrepreneurs and founders, and I have just tremendous appreciation for those who have ideas and are willing to take risks. And then to bring in your family involved, you know, no matter what, you always have family dynamics. And I, and I say this in the nicest way, but, you know, the older sibling often has a certain amount of a position with the younger siblings and then this younger siblings and not not always the case. The stereotypes exist because they happen a lot but the dynamics among siblings is complicated and even with you know parents so so uh you know i i have great empathy for family businesses and family enterprises and i think sometimes the role that an advisor can play is is just guiding them towards the right answer that it comes from within to your exact point every family business and enterprise is very different yeah so tell us a little bit about wingspan legacy what is a what does a day or or a week in the life of Marianne G. Bell look like? Uh, what you know? What is the work that a family business, family office advisory practice does? Tell us about it. Well, to your point, we do different things for different different families. Sounds like it. <laughs> many times there's an inflection point where there's an awareness that there's a gap, mm-hmm. whether it's a succession gap or there's an onboarding of the next generation gap, or there is a transaction where the family business will be sold. And so there'd be some concentrated assets. And what are we going to do with that? Um, unfortunately, also, we've had a few situations where there's been a health event that has preceded someone looking for advice. And and in many cases, also, someone just feels like we can they can do better. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what's exciting when someone says, we're just not organized. We don't have our thought process. The family doesn't know what's going on, but I want to get them involved. What do we need to do? And so each in each of those circumstances, we um, try to build for families what they need. And at the, at the root of um, any of our engagements is really understanding the family and doing interviews and one-on-one meetings with multi-generational. We often have the founder generation. We call it oftentimes the now generation who are running the business and then the rising generation. Not always three, but, um, and then of course, working laterally across branches of the family. And so that's where we begin and we start to understand the family's identity and their, 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 their value system and what's important to them. Interesting. And then who is your client? The family? Or the business? That's a great question. That's a very great question. Um, in some cases, it's directly with only the family. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. the construct of the engagement has uh, is comes through the business because right. ultimately, families want both. Right, right. And then how do you – I'm not asking for who's the signature on the contract, but it's sort of metaphorically speaking – are all the signatures on the contract so that everyone knows what we're about to do, you, about to do with the family and the business. And it isn't just being led by the Rupert Murdoch, you know, right. the authoritative or authoritarian figure in the in the company or the CEO. Well, Jonathan, you, you're asking really smart questions. And these are the nuances that make us um, hopefully, I mean, all of us collectively, it sounds like you do this as well, is, is have an impact, which is we may be brought in by the founder and the signature on our contract may be the founder or the person who's running a business. But what's really important is we communicate and connect with all the stakeholders. And that is the, the, the entire family. And, and what that may mean is, you know, 25 meetings. Mm-hmm. And what we think is very important is when we are brought in, that there's an endorsement by the family leader of our work but that everyone who's part of the family is invited to engage. Gotcha. So our communication with the family throughout our engagements is really important. And it can't just be through the founder or the authority figure. In many cases, families have ownership and authority that really aren't aligned. And so one person really has control of a business, but other people own it. And you never want to only be representative of one person. that Because that's not going to get the, the full representation of the family's interests, goals, and objectives. Sure. So I could imagine that in the assignments that you're engaged in, you could use a whole variety of people from uh, attorney to accountant, uh, maybe even forensic uh, accountants, and um, also psychologists, uh, family business experts, advisors, uh, insurance folks. Is that how your model is? Is that 100% collaborative? We we are collaborative all the time. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, people who oversee financial advice, whether it's an accountant team or an investment team, legal advice is important. And of course, that runs the range of estate planning to business advice. And in some cases, specialized, whether it's art or or, mm-hmm. or aeronautics right. or other types of specialization, special assets that need to be part of the equation. And one of the things I find to be so rewarding is when we can really collaborate and work as a team and think intentionally about what are the goals of the family and how do we how do we advance them? And 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 to me, that's as much as engaging with our families is really 
satisfying and working with a team. Every family that has a business or concentrated wealth needs to have some amount of specialized advice. 100%. Marianne, it's been fabulous talking to you. You're a wealth of knowledge, um, super smart on this subject. If people want to learn more, um, how do they find you or your company? LinkedIn is a great way to connect up with me. Wingspan has a very um, robust uh, uh, platform on LinkedIn as well as well as our website. Uh, it's Wingspan Legacy Partners is our full name. Yes, and uh, we are absolutely uh, eager to talk to anyone who's in the family enterprise arena. We think it's interesting and important. And uh, send us an email through our website, or certainly reach out to me in direct message on my LinkedIn. Sounds good. Well, I guess the name is no accident. Your wingspan is very uh, large and great on the <laughs> on these subjects and as well they need to be because of the complexity of, exactly. of, of who you're dealing with. So, Marion, thanks for being a guest on the show. Folks, you know the drill. If you got some good value from this, give it a great rating on your podcast listening application of choice. Share it with others and stay tuned for future episodes of the Disruptive Successor Show. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.